So, yes, I mean, there was something amazing in the fact that he, that trial confounded everybody's expectations because most people just thought it was a lost cause. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Here we are at Humanity Hub. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts. It's me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van der And we've been really lucky today to draw in Celeste Hicks. Hi, Celeste. Hi, how are you doing? We're fine. Uh, we're here going to talk about your book, which is the book, as far as we know, about the Habre trial, the former dictator of Chad who was put on trial in Senegal and has got the whole international justice world buzzing with this as an idea, as a way of going forward, as an alternative to some of the other mechanisms that, that we have around. Just let's have a, have a reality check. What do you know about the Habre trial, Stephanie? Well, it's kind of cheating because I lived for two years in Senegal, so I'm quite up to date with the Habre trial, but I'm probably one of the few in the kind of uh, uh, international news agency world who's really focused on this. Um, I am kind of curious because I know it's went on and I'm very curious to know, Celeste, that because it's being touted as this solution, whether it really worked. Let's just start though by asking Celeste to introduce herself properly to kind of establish what her expertise in, is in this area. You're a, you're a Chad person. Yeah, I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, I worked for BBC World Service in Chad from 2008 to 2010. Uh, and then I came back to London and went back to the World Service and people just kept asking me to write about Chad, um, really because so few people know about it. And I realised that there was this fascinating country with so much stuff happening and no one knew anything. So I kept writing about Chad and then eventually went freelance and returned to Chad on many occasions as a freelancer. Uh, and this is actually my second book about Chad. My first one was about the oil industry there. Okay, so why did you end up writing this, this book? Quite simply, it was just an amazing story. Um, when I finished my first book... I swore I wasn't going to write another book again. It's not an easy thing to do. You don't make any money from it. In fact, I still owe the publisher money. Um, and it took a long time and it was stressful and really took over my life. I thought, I don't want to do this again. But as I watched the Habre trial unfold in Dakar and I went to visit several times during the trial and I looked back on the fact that I'd been meeting people like Suleiman um, Gengang and Clement Abayfouta and Jacqueline Mudena for years. Those are um, some of the main organisers of the victims. Yeah, those so three. Suleiman is the main guy that set up the victims organisation and Jacqueline is the, lawyer, the Chadian lawyer that represented them. I realised I just had this back catalogue of knowledge that pr I'm quite sure nobody else apart from Reed Brody had. And I thought... Reed Brody, dictator hunter! Reed Brody, dictator hunter, The yeah. Human Rights Watch backed him to, to really get this trial yeah. going. Reed's involvement in the trial was amazing and he used everything, every resource available to him at Human Rights Watch to find a way to keep the trial on track. 
Um, so he, I mean, he has the institutional memory much better than I do. But um, so really, I was just captivated by the strength of the story and, and the personal stories involved in it. Okay, so the personal stories of victims, or the story of the fact that this trial was happening at all. I mean, what what was it? It, it was both. I mean, I, when I was in Chad in two thousand and eight, read used to email me and say oh we're having a meeting of the victims association you know would you like to come along and you know I'd say okay and I'd go and I'd look at them and I thought well how is this ever going to happen Habre's in his 70s in Dakar he's being protected by the Senegalese government nobody's making a serious attempt to try him and but Reed kept going and the victims kept going um so yes I mean there was something amazing in the fact that he that trial confounded everybody's expectations because most people just thought it was a lost cause. Um, and so the fact that it happened was amazing. But also just the the fact that it was the victims that did it. You know, it was people like Suleiman started collecting stories of people that had been tortured in the 80s, just had a, basically a box of stories, handwritten stories in his house in Chad from the early 1990s. And somehow that box got smuggled out of the airport and given to Reed in New York and and it was really just extremely hands-on grassroots movement for justice um, and the, the tenacity of those people like Suleiman and Clement and Jacqueline fighting really 25 years they fought for justice you can't you know you can't dismiss that like I, I'm not sure you you would see parallel determination in it in every place so it was just it, it just it, it had to be told and and getting back to Stephanie's question, sort of, you, it was about whether sort of whether this is the future. There was a big push made of this is being justice for the Africans and also supported by the African Union and uh, coincided with the kind of uh, neo-colonial criticism of the ICC that that's kind of Western justice inflicted on Africans and the Habre trial would kind of show how that Africans can do this themselves and that it's African justice for African people. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of that uh, came through and mostly how it was felt in Chad um, as being closer to them than something international or that it still felt very far away for victims. You basically answered the question. I mean, that, that, that is how it was framed. It was, and I, I had to wrestle quite a lot with this question as I was writing it. The fact that it did coincide with the, the criticisms of the ICC, the Kenyatta trial, or the attempts to try Kenyatta, and then the, the, the indictment of Omar al-Bashir. And there was a lot of kind of pseudo-narrative going on about this being an alternative. But actually, if you when I went back and looked at when things had happened, it really was actually just a coincidence that it happened at that time. And it e easily could not have happened. Um, so I think, you know, once you sort of disentangle those two things, um, it looks a little bit different. Um, it, it was absolutely an example that the African Union can do it if it wants to do it. Um, and once everybody had made the political conditions possible, and once Macky Sall in Senegal had decided that he wanted to do it, they did pull their finger out and and it was a very successful trial and it got a verdict and it was cost around 10 million dollars and was over and you know the, the the whole phase witness phase and the trial phase and then the verdict was all within a year so it was very quick very cheap and it got a verdict 
Um, I mean, the question then becomes, would they do it again in other circumstances? And that's when it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, I mean, the, Habre was really quite a special case. He was extremely isolated. He'd been out of power for 25 years. Although there's a small element of people in Chad who still support him, there was never any risk that there was going to be any destabilisation from Habre being tried and put in jail that you might have in, in situations like Gambia, for example, where yes. there's still a lot of people related to Yahya Jame in positions of power and there's still a lot of rawness and tension in society. Um, so, you know, you have to take all of those factors into consideration. It's certainly, the, the, the EAC which tried Habre is certainly a model which could be dusted off, if you like, but obviously every situation is going to have different um, requirements. Yeah, and the, the reason this only worked in Senegal was also because there was a power change in Senegal. Uh, yeah. And as you said, Macky Sall, the new president, was less inclined to protect Habre than his uh, predecessor who protected him for many years and kept him in his nice villa in, uh, in Senegal. So the politics surrounding it also matters very much as well. As with every international court, whoever they get is who they can get politically at that point. Well, I mean, exactly that. And I'm a journalist. I have no legal background. I did, you know, I read about the all the big international cases just as a as a media consumer. So I'd never really thought about these issues. And I came to that conclusion and realised that actually, yes, that is kind of what it is. It's you have to pick your cases, don't you? You have to pick the ones you're going to win. And you know, and I, I suppose when I started writing the book, I was of the impression that perhaps there was some kind of like, you know, paradigm of perfect international justice that would apply and that would have like rules that work for everything. And then the Habre case, writing about that, just showed me, yeah, you just get who you can get. <laughs> we have put very wry smiles on our face as you're talking at the moment because uh, this is part of what we have to spend our time looking at is the uh, the whole issue of getting who you can get. Uh, at this point and uh, how those decisions are made. But I do think that yeah, the important thing here is to not only read Brody and all his human rights watch and the man who brought Pinochet to justice is also, is also a lot of read Brody, but he really put his weight behind it, but it would never have been possible without indeed the victims who put this issue on the map time and time again. And when I was in Dakar in uh, 2009 and 2010, they would give press conferences every time and every time I think almost Habre moved from his villa, they would show up. So you really couldn't go around them. So it's also a case of the, you know, that kind of uh, story of the, you have to be the friendly dinosaur when you want people on the airline to change your ticket. You have to kind of sit in the waiting room, smile and not go away. So you become their problem. So you're comparing the, the victims to that, to just to that, keeping on going? Keeping on going, being very friendly, being very respectful and keeping hammering that this has to happen. But also by just not going away, by being very visible. Yeah. Yeah, they were very visible. And, and, and even in the trial, they were incredibly visible. They were sitting at the front of the court. You know, this, it was almost as if the, 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 the weight of the court was kind of looking, it was centred on them. You know, the judge was looking down directly onto them. They, they were able to get up and make presentations to the court. And Habre was kind of on the other side because um, he was so silent and he didn't move and he didn't talk it was almost as if he wasn't there half the time and it really just became a, the actual court process became about the victims why don't you just remind us what the name of the book is and where we can find it uh, the book is called the trial of Hissen Habre very simply and the subtitle is bringing a tyrant to justice it's published by Zed Books um, you can find it on the Zed Books website uh, but it's also on Amazon um, it's in a number of books 
bookshops in the UK. I'm not sure if it's in any bookshops in The Hague, but we, maybe I could send you some copies. <laughs> okay. Um, so we have a couple of questions that we always ask our, um, our podcast guests. What do people never ask you that they should be asking you? I think one of the things that always surprises me that no one asks is is the process of of how one goes about getting stories and how much time and effort it takes to physically get yourself to the places where you need to um, get the stories. In terms, and I'm talking here particularly as a freelancer, financing trips and organising that and and getting in touch with NGOs and trying to persuade them to give you a room in some random corner of somewhere or ringing the WFP and seeing if you can squeeze onto one of their aid delivery flights so you can get to the place. Um, it's it, That sort of logistic side of it and the process involved of... It, it, I, d- I don't even know what people would think in terms of, uh, of how you would get the stories, but I think sometimes they just... Mag- the f- people seem to think they just magically appear, and so I'm always surprised that nobody asks me more about that. I think especially in Africa, this is a, a thing that no, nobody really figures out how long it takes you to get from A to B and they look at a map, even editors, and be like, you could be there in an hour. Yes, if it had German highways, possibly. Yeah. What's the biggest uh, mistake people make about your work or the biggest uh, what people get wrong when they talk about what you do? I think lots of people don't even know where Chad is. They don't know anything about Chad. Um, I mean, in many ways, Chad kind of conforms to some of the stereotypes that people have about Africa has been this kind of war-ravaged place, you know, like hot and dry and underdeveloped. Um, but I, I think they, you know, there's, there's, they don't always kind of understand the complexity of the societies. And actually, although I found it very difficult to live in Chad and it was hard, I, I also found once I broke through the kind of getting past a lot of the sort of first interactions you have with people, they, they were the sort of warmest, funniest, kind of most loyal people you could imagine and also just the most ridiculously hard and determined people I mean obviously people like Clement and Jacqueline they've been fighting for 25 years and and you know and and Reed has said this as well like if you once you become their friend you know they, they will always be your friend they're not people who will just you know, be involved for the sake of the story at that point, and Reed still sees them regularly, um, and they st- even though it's all over now, they still are in touch with him all the time. So I think people from the outside just tend to dismiss places like Chad as just these kind of like backward places where people don't have a complex emotional life and personal relationships and things that are important to them. They just kind of don't. They see people in a very one-dimensional way. And um, finally. Um do you have any specific book or movie or thing that you've seen that really changed the way that uh, that you do your work? Um, on, on the Habre story, I mean, it was a film called The Dictator Hunter, which everybody knows, you referred to it before. Um, it's a film about um, when Reed Brody ha- went to Chad in, I think, in like 2001 or 2002 he looks a lot younger on the film so it's quite a long time ago um, and the film is basically of and I don't think they even realised it was happening even as they were filming it but they walked into um, what was once one of Habre's former prisons and they kind of just they filmed him walking in and they just sort of like pushed this door back and then they find documents 
of all the but it was basically prison documents from this place which was a torture centre and the Chadians had kept these immaculate records of what had happened to all the people they tortured their names their ages where they lived and, and what they did to them and whether they died or not and then they just dumped them on like it, they must have been in a filing cabinet and over the years it had fallen over and they were just on the floor so there's this point where Reed just walks in and like, trips over these thousands of documents on the floor of all these stories of people that were tortured by Habre and you just it was just such a Chadian moment because it was this kind of like the 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 complexity of this society where people did document everything and wrote it all down like I was saying you know you think people think Chad they can't even write in Chad and you know they're so backwards but actually they they'd written down in this like perfect filing system everything that had happened and then they just left it in a drawer and ran away and it had fallen over and nobody had ever gone to tidy it up and it was just that just really resonated with me of like yeah the sort of the, the complexity of Habre's system and how how brutal and ruthless and targeted it had been but also just kind of once he'd gone and he'd left power it was just like it evaporated and I found that image really powerful and yeah that, that was one of the things that sort of and, and I was glad that film existed because I was able to refer to it in the book when there was gaps in what had happened around that, that time. So, yeah, they, that was probably the, the one that sort of made me realise that there was something great in this story. Thanks for coming. I really have a new view on the Hamburg trial. So, so my big question is really, um, how is this outcome now seen in Chad? They had the trial. It was uh, for international justice standards. This is a coup. It was cheap. It was done by Africans. There was uh, everybody was heard. There is uh, a verdict. But how did the victims really see it? Are they happy with the outcome? Did they feel that their stories were actually told at trial? Um, I think broadly it was seen as a success in Chad um, between the victims and also in the wider society. Um, I did some research like in the follow-up to the trial because I, I, I was sort of reading about other cases of international justice there had been this criticism that nobody goes afterwards to see how people felt about it. I mean it was only like a year after the trial so it wasn't that long after. Um, and I did some interviews with the victims and just literally random people on the street. Um, Chad's a very small place, so everybody did know about the trial and everybody had kind of followed it in various ways. Maybe they'd heard about it through family. Some people had actually watched it on TV. Um, so, I mean, for the victims, I would say, yes, there was definitely um, an appreciation that they had told their story, their suffering had been recognised, it had been put on the historical record what had happened to them, um, and they were definitely pleased that he was jailed. Um, there was a few question marks around the fact that Habre never spoke at all during the trial and I think some people felt frustrated about that because they'd wanted to get answers, they wanted to understand what was going on and he denied them an explanation. Um, and also there was a few questions around the role of France and the United States in the 80s because they backed Habre during the 80s. They there was ample evidence that they knew what he was up to, but they didn't do anything. So there was, there were, there were a lot of questions unanswered. But from my reading about other international trials, I think that is also just what happens. You have to basically focus on the person that's in the dock. Um, there were also other co-accused torturers who had actually carried out the torture, and they never came to court. And so there was a bit of disappointment that they weren't also brought to justice. Um, for the wider society in Chad, I think they a lot of people seemed proud 
that it had happened. They were proud that Chadians had been involved in it. They were felt hopeful that, you know, the former god, the little god that Habre was called in Chad, um, had been brought to justice. Um, but I think there was also a sense of nothing's actually changed in Chad. Like, although Idris Deby is not by any stretch of the imagination as bad as Habre was, there is still there's still a serious democratic deficit in Chad and um, there's still arbitrary arrests and detentions and economically things haven't got much better. There's still a lot of tensions between different ethnic groups. So I, I think that although people were happy that, that Habre was dealt with, the wider questions about kind of ju- even judicial capacity within Chad, nothing has changed there. The courts in Chad still take forever and uh, you know are corrupt and massively under resourced so you know I think it it was everything you said about it is true in the sense that it was a, a good symbolic case it got it got a verdict and that you can't you can't undermine that but whether it had an, a wider impact on African justice or Chad itself or even in Senegal I'm, I'm not sure you can argue that too strongly. Well, thanks very much, Celeste, for for coming along and joining our podcast. Thanks for inviting me. And so it's goodbye from me, Janet Anderson. Here we are in Humanity Hub, and thank you very much to them for hosting us. And goodbye from me, Stephanie van der Berg, and we hope you follow our podcast. This podcast was created and hosted by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music was by audionautics.com. Our website is asymmetricalhaircuts.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the same handle. And please give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.